The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So, last time we were together, um, I showed you this priceless painting um, that was hanging on the wall of the church and had fallen into disrepair because of uh, age and, and water damage. And I told you the story of how this sweet old lady in the congregation came along and she wanted to touch it up. Um, but she did a bad job and it turned out like what you see on the right. So it went from what it is on the left to what it, what it became on the right. And um, this was sort of a, met, a metaphor for, uh, we call this our Jesus image. We, it's sort of a metaphor for orthodoxy. It's, it's our best understanding of, uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, and, and what we said was that, uh, when, that there are times when your, your understanding of Jesus, your Jesus image, um, has flaws in it. You know, it's, it's, there are problems in there. And, and when that happens, you can't just ignore that. Even, even if we try, you can't ignore that. And so we talked about the, the importance of this process that, that I call art restoration. Art restoration, where you, you take those parts that need work and you, you revise them and you, you sort of repaint them. Uh, and one of the questions uh, that was asked in a number of different forms uh, during the message and after the message and during the week was, what role does scripture play in this? Like, what, what are the parameters of art restoration? Because we, um, we can't just take any idea that we like and call it Christianity, right? We can't just put anything into our Jesus image that we want. At the same time, we can't just go excluding certain ideas and truths um, that may or may not be familiar or part of our own tradition. So, what do we do? So I really like this, this quote from um, a theologian named Gavin Orland. He says... If you, have just, if you just have a me and my Bible approach, and you're not aware of church history at all, you can become incredibly narrow without realizing it, because you heard your pastor say something, and so you assume that it's of the same importance as something in the Apostles' Creed. And you just simply aren't aware that actually lots of godly Christians go a different way on that. So part of the value of church history can be to broaden us in certain ways and make us more generous and help us find what are the right hills to die on. I just think that's so helpful. So we're in the middle of, we're actually on the tail end of this series, uh, through going through the Apostles' Creed, asking what and how the church believes. And our goal has been not just to understand how Scripture supports the ideas that are contained in the Apostles' Creed, but also, like, what do we do with this? What is it, if we believe these things, how do we treat one another? And what do we do with, how do we interact with people who disagree? Um, today, as always, uh, there's a phone number on the bottom of the screen. Please, if you have a question as we go along, feel free to uh, text those in. And time permitting, we'll get to those um, at the end of the service, if we don't have time, um, I'll put the, those answers up on, um, on our Facebook page. But today, I think what we have in the Creed, focusing on the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, that gives us some parameters. It gives us sort of a test that we can use as we do our art restoration. Okay, it's a test. So to see that, we're going to begin by going and looking at the Holy Spirit. What do we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit? So I'm just going to share some scripture with you. Uh, the, first, the first sort of chunk here, this is where Jesus talks to his disciples just before he leaves about who the Spirit is and what, he comes, what's he's, what he's coming to do. So John 14, Jesus says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. He continues, a chapter later says, When the Counselor comes, the one I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He'll testify about me. 
And then John 16, a chapter later, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, but he'll speak whatever he hears. He'll glorify me, Jesus says, uh, because he'll take from what's mine and declare it to you. And here, it's just important to see the Holy Spirit is a person, and his whole mission in coming, uh, in being sent from the Father, being, being sent, is to glorify Jesus, to testify about Jesus, and, and, and help us to help the disciples to remember what it is that Jesus said when he was here. Uh, it's also important to remember that uh, the Holy Spirit is God. He's God. So in Acts chapter 5, there are other passages that teach this. But there's this really interesting story that happened during the early church where there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they told a, a, a really serious lie, and they were busted. And so as Peter, the apostle, is, is sort of uh, confronting uh, Ananias, the husband, about it, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Um, so he's, lie- he's saying, Peter's saying, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, why'd you do this? Why'd you plan this in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. So this person in line to the Spirit has lied to God. And so this is really important. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God. He's equal with the Father. He's equal with the Son. Uh, and another thing that's important to see is the Spirit's role in giving us Scripture. And so we just heard read Peter sharing the story, saying, I didn't make this stuff up. I'm testifying to you what, I, what I've seen and what I've heard. I saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, he says in 1 Peter. I, saw, I, I heard the voice. I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm a witness of these things. And he's saying all Scripture actually works this way. He says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these words, uh, we might say they're God-breathed, they're God-given. The authors of Scripture, they wrote what the Spirit moved them to write. Now that's not the same as saying that all of our interpretations of those words are correct and true. Not all interpretations are valid, but the words that the Spirit gave, those are what He wanted uh, given. And so on this part, when we're we're talking about what we mean by the I believe in the Holy Spirit, when when we say that, we're saying, we haven't been left alone down here. We have a witness. We have, we have God himself who is, who is with us. And, and when we read his word, we can hear his voice. We can hear him testify and, and speak. When we're in a, in a sort of a receptive posture, open and paying attention, and carefully reading and studying that, God's word, uh, if we've heard him right, we should be able to go, I've heard, I've heard the Spirit testifying about Jesus pointing me to Jesus, glorifying uh, Jesus. And that's what he wants. That's who the Spirit is. That's what he wants for us. So that's, that's a big part of what we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. All right? So he's one witness. Another is in the Holy Catholic Church. When we say, what do we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church? So if you are from a Roman Catholic background, and I know a couple of us in the room are, you look at this part and you're like, yeah, boom. Take that reformation. Um, but I want to point out, it's a small C Catholic, uh, and just want to highlight kind of what the, defi- what the, what the difference is there. Um, a lot of us don't use the word Catholic in our sort of normal vernacular, but it's a, it is an adjective that means, um, so it comes from two little Greek words, kata, uh, like according to, and hollow, which is like the whole, so according to the whole, like according to the consensus, according to the, the entire group. That's what Catholic means, okay? 
Um, so this, when we say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what we're not saying is I follow the teachings. Uh, I follow all the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, it's just important to say that when we when we say the creed. Um, just so you know, um, the the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist in the same way that it does today when the Apostles' Creed was be, first being used or be, first being said. Um, so we love our, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. We, there's lots uh, that they believe that we can say amen to. But that's not what we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. What we mean uh, is, for example, something like what Jesus says in Matthew 16. There he's, uh, he's telling Peter what his intention is for the church. He says, um, uh, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And that's just super important. Like, there is this people that Jesus is going to gather, and they're going to continue Jesus' work on earth, and there's going to be some binding and some loosing. Okay, like restraining some things, evil and, and injustice, and they're going to be loosing or freeing or releasing certain things like justice and mercy and, 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 and so on. And as we do, as the church does this, even the gates of Hades, the gates of death itself, will not be able to stop the work of the church. That's Matthew 16. Uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the church is the body of Christ. It's like the presence of, of Jesus on earth. He says, just as the body is one and has many parts, okay, one body, many parts, uh, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And so here, the, the body, this body is like this, this washed, baptized person, this this. Uh, and, and it consists of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, um, uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all brought together and all one and unified. Okay? And, and just so you know where this is all going, this is such a beautiful picture. Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John, he's got a vision of what it's going to be like uh, in heaven. And uh, he says, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, so beautiful, uh, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And that's who we belong to. That multitude is who we belong to as the church, as the one holy Catholic church. Um, Gavin Ortland, he comments, he says this, When we become a Christian... We don't just come to Christ. We come into a family, the church. And the church is not just people who are alive. It is also the tradition of people who've gone before. So again, here, when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying, I identify with this group. This is my family uh, from all across the world, all kinds of all places of the earth where people are trusting Jesus, and from all time, for the last 2,000 years, as long as there have been people naming the name of Jesus, that's our family. And we can learn from the example of the church. And so in this way, the Holy Spirit is a witness testifying to, uh, to Jesus, how to, how to live like Jesus and who Jesus is. And the, the example of the church, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, is also an example, is also a witness pointing us to Jesus uh, as well. That's what we mean by the Holy Catholic Church. Now, what do we mean when we say the communion of saints? So here again, just a couple of things that maybe need to be clarified. Uh, you might have 
thought of, you might think of the word saints as referring to these super Christians who have done amazing supernatural things for God. Uh, So just so you know, in scripture, everybody who's a follower of Jesus is a saint. That's that's you and me. If you're if you trust Jesus today, you are a saint. Uh, And then the word communion, we often use that to refer to what happens when we take the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the cup. Um, That's not that's not what we have in mind here by communion. Communion is a picture of a shared life. It's a life together that we that we have in common. Proverbs 11 sort of gets at it where there's no guidance. A people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Uh, and, and that's a picture of communion. Um, there's, there's people who are uh, advisors, counselors to, to one another, sharing and providing safety for one another. And, and that, I think, is a picture of what the church should be, what a church, a small c church should be that. It's a, like a, a local gathering of saints committed to one another, sharing with one another, doing life together in the way of Jesus. And as we do that, things change. God uses that. And so here's a great picture of the communion of saints from Acts chapter 2. Everyone was filled with awe and many, many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. The believers were together. They held all things in common. They sold all their possessions and, poverty and, and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted uh, themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says that every day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. So you have in this picture uh, the communion of the saints. There is this shared life. They're sharing their time. They're sharing their hearts and their, their affections with one another. They're sharing their space and their food, and their money, and their possessions. And this is a great picture, I think, of the communion of the saints. So one more here, Hebrews chapter 10. In light of this, you know, we're, we're challenged to watch out for one another, to provoke one another, um, to provoke love and good deeds, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And, and you might have heard this this text or this passage used in order to argue why we need to go to church. And I think it's like it's not less than that, but it's so much more. This is a picture of what should be happening when the saints have communion together. There should be encouragement happening. We should be pushing each other to love and to good works. That's what we have the opportunity to be and to do for each other in this shared life. Um, and by the way, if people aren't doing this, if, 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 if someone disassociates themselves from a church, um, that shows up in the way they live their life uh, as well. How many of you know somebody like that? Do you, how, many, how many of you know someone who has uh, sort of isolated themselves from, from you know, the, communion, the communion of saints? And it's sort of, they're sort of like a, a me and my Bible kind of Christians. Does anybody know someone like that? Um, yeah, so I'll tell you about a, a guy I know. I'll call him Joe. Um, he likes to troll me online every once in a while, uh, and he is not part of a church. He hasn't stayed in a local church for longer than a few months to maybe a year. Um, there tends to be conflict between himself and other con- people in the church or between himself and the pastors. Uh, he gets fed. He, gets his, he does his learning by listening to the sermons of famous pastors online. Um, he would consider most Christian leaders today to be liberal or heretics or false teachers. 
Um, he includes me in that list. He has what he would consider a ministry on Facebook and Twitter, um, posting about the, the false teachers uh, that, are, that are rampant in the church. I'm not mad about Joe. I'm not angry at Joe. I'm sad for him. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sad for what he's missing out on. He's isolated himself from the communion of saints. He is his own uh, pastor. He's his own uh, faith family. He is his own uh, huddle. Uh, he is he, his, his own voice. He's like a one-man church. That is the opposite of what we mean by the communion of saints. And I love that this is right there in the Apostles' Creed, right side by side with the idea of the Trinity. Right? Like just as essential as the, the, the Father Almighty, Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit, just as essential, the same creed says, I believe in the communion of saints. That's so important. It's saying, like, I need this. And so when I say, I, I believe in the communion of saints, that's a way of saying, I surrender my preferences. I know that I need other people. I need other voices in my life. I need a, this, this shared life of walking, the, you know, doing, doing the life of Jesus uh, with other believers. And I'll share myself with others. And they're going to share their life with me. And in this way, we're going to become more like Jesus than we would uh, otherwise. So this is a third witness. Just as, as the Spirit is a witness to who Jesus is and how to honor him. And just as church history is an example that, that bears witness to, to how to live for Jesus... In the same way, we are a witness. We get to testify to each other how to live for Jesus. So I want to zoom out now for a few minutes. I want to come back to our original question. Uh, because, you know, you've got your Jesus image, which again is sort of a metaphor for our beliefs, for orthodoxy. Our Jesus image is our best understanding of who Jesus is. And part of our goal in discipleship is getting at a Jesus image that resembles the original. It's, it's true and beautiful, and, it's, and it resembles the original. And if we're honest, each of us comes to times where we realize that there are problems in our Jesus image. There's flaws, and, and there's cracks, or there's blind spots, or there's tensions, or there's contradictions. And, and you can't ignore those. You can't pretend that you don't see those. So what do we do? So art restoration looks like this, I think. I think we, we let the creed be a test of how we do um, our art restoration. Because in Scripture, in Scripture we have uh, the witness of the Spirit. And again, we may hear the Spirit wrong. There are times when we misinterpret a passage or a teaching. But in Scripture, we have the Spirit as, as a witness. Uh, in the church, we have, um, we have a witness because at various times the church has taught or practiced certain things. And those may or may not have been right. But that's another witness. And then we have a, three, a third witness in this communion of saints. And when we discern together what the way of Jesus means in our context, we have a third witness, the witness of the saints. And as we bring the three together, the spirit, uh, the church, and the saints, as we bring those together, that really should guide our, um, our art restoration. Now, ideally, all three of those will agree. As you take an idea... And you, or a, and you run it through that test, it should ideally agree with all three of those. And then in that case, it's, it's good. You, you accept it. That's part of your orthodoxy. That's allowed that you're going to make that part of your Jesus image. Sometimes all three will disagree. And so you're going to have to let that go and say, no, uh, I don't care who be has believed this. Um, I don't care how novel or interesting it is, but I can't include this in my Jesus image. 
Sometimes only one or two agree. And so that doesn't mean it's wrong, but you, you do need to sort of, um, you should be suspicious or you should be suspect about it. I just think this test is super practical. So I'm going to uh, give a couple of examples. Uh, if we go back in time uh, to the practice of, if we go pra- back to the practice of slavery, okay? So there was, in the, in the United States, a couple hundred years ago, Slavery was, was uh, rampant, and the claim that was being made among lots of Bible-believing people was that owning slaves is fine because slaves don't have souls. So that's the claim that was being made. And, uh, and, and so what if we test that claim? So we test it against the Scripture, against the Spirit's voice in Scripture. Does Scripture agree? Well, in those days, there were lots of people who said yes. They actually took Scripture to endorse or to support the practice of slavery. Uh, there was a minority who disagreed. And to be honest, you can, act, you can make Scripture support slavery if you want to. Um, now, you test it against the, the, the testimony or the witness of the church. Does church history agree? Um, well, here, it's, it's unclear too, because uh, there, there were times when Christians owned slaves and, and endorsed slavery, and there were times when it, the church was against it in different places. But there is an interesting pattern where that where slavery was practiced, the gospel was corrupted, and people were like holiness uh, was compromised, and, and so that was really helpful because there were pockets of the saints who looked at the issue of slavery, and they looked at scripture and they said no, like that's when it changed was when the the, the communion of saints when they when they looked at what the word says and they were like no there, this has to stop. And we're not, going to stop, we're not going to stop fighting against this thing until it ends. And so here, in this example of slavery, there are times when the wider church has misread Scripture. Uh, and, and the wider example of church history isn't totally helpful. But we need the communion of saints in order to come together and to say, like, no, that is not Jesus. And we're not going to include that idea in our, in our Jesus image. That can't be part of orthodoxy. Here's another example. Uh, the example of hell. So my friend Joe that I, I mentioned a minute ago. Joe is someone who has a lot to say about hell. He seems to enjoy talking about hell. Joe would say Christians must believe that hell is the place where God is going to pour out his wrath on sinners forever. And anybody who denies that idea that, that, uh, of eternal conscious torment of the, of the wicked. Anybody who denies this is a heretic or a, or a false teacher. So, we should test that. Does Scripture agree with him? Many Scriptures do, actually. Many Scriptures do. But I actually think that there are some Scriptures that would surprise Joe on that, on that subject, on that claim. Does church history ha- uh, agree with Joe? I've got to be honest with you, it doesn't really. In fact, the, the view that Joe describes, the view that Joe thinks is part, has to be part of orthodoxy, um, that's a fairly recent development over the last four or five centuries. What about the saints? Do the saints agree that this needs to be part of orthodoxy? So maybe. I bet if we took a poll here about what we believe about hell, uh, there would be some people who are fairly certain about what hell is, based on Scripture. There would be some who aren't sure. But I don't think anybody here would stop talking to each other because we, have, because we disagree on what hell means. I don't think that this would be something that we break fellowship over. And so in this case, I, Joe may or may not be right. He might be right that this needs to be part of orthodoxy. 
Um, but we, we, or he may be, may be right that this is the truth. But what we can't say is that this is, that this is part of orthodoxy and that every Christian must believe this or be condemned. We, we can't say that this is something that must be part of your Jesus image. Okay? Here's another example, maybe a more uh, current example. Um, suppose you have a group of, of Christians, uh, a local expression of the saints, who uh, they, they look at gender. And there's a lot of people, a lot of even Christians today, who are beginning to say that gender is a social construct. And um, biology is irrelevant in the conversation about gender. If people don't live the gender that they feel, their personhood is under attack. So that's the claim. And we, sh- we can test it. Does the scripture agree with that? Um, I don't think it does. Uh, I don't think you can make the Bible agree with that idea. Uh, does church history agree with that idea? Um, I don't think so. I, don't, you, I, don't, I think that uh, this has never been the practice of church history. This, this has never been taught uh, in, in 2,000 years of, of Christian history. And then when we look at the saints, it may be that there will be local expressions of saints who have this view. Some will. I think a, a lot won't. But to, uh, to be honest, just in case you were wondering where I'm at, I'm not nervous that this is going to become part of orthodoxy. Even if the wider church in the West goes down this road, I'm not really bent out of shape about it. I do think that historically, um, these, this, this sort of thing has a, a tendency to correct itself uh, over enough time. One more example, maybe a little closer to home. Suppose you're suffering. Suppose you are going through just a hard time with health problems. You feel betrayed by your body. You are your, or things at work just suck. And you just can't get ahead. You feel betrayed by people you know. And you're like, why? Like, what did I do wrong? God, why are you punishing me? And, and, and sometimes we can ask these questions. Why is God punishing me? And, and the claim here is, maybe if I were a better Christian, I wouldn't be suffering I wouldn't have problems. I'd be healthy and wealthy. Um, and just so you know, there's a name for that. There are, it's, it's, it's the prosperity gospel. Um, and, and some of us might have a Jesus image that includes this. That if I'm a good Christian, I won't have hard times. I won't go through hard things. Again, you should take this and you should test it. We run it through the test. And let's ask, what does the Spirit say about that in Scripture? Does the Bible agree that followers of Jesus will not suffer? No, it does not. It doesn't say that. You can't make the Bible say that. Does church history agree? It doesn't. Church history seems to show the opposite, that those who are faithful to the Lord actually will suffer and will have hard times. And do the saints agree with us in this idea? If if you're feeling this, if you're wrestling with these questions, do do the saints around you agree? Like, would they look at your attitude? Would they look at your actions? And would they conclude whatever's going on, God is clearly punishing you. No. No. And so, so, again, that is an idea that you just can't allow that to be part of your Jesus image. And we could go on and on, but I would just encourage you to take this and use this as a test as you do your art restoration. Because we can't just make anything up and call that Christianity. And we can't just take ideas that are true and helpful and exclude them from our Jesus image just because they might not be familiar or comfortable in our tribe. 
So there's great, I think there's great benefit corporately to these three witnesses, but I think there's also a lot of benefit personally. And I just want to close with this. I just think that, um, I just think that when we say the creed, uh, at the very least, we're saying we are part of something bigger than we are. Right? We're part of something really big and historic, something epic. And, and I need that. I don't know, like if you're like me, um, you, I, you know, I'm a classic overthinker. I get a lot of anxiety if I don't know the answer to questions. If I don't know the answer to, uh, if I don't know the answer to something, it really, it stresses me out. I feel like I'm disappointing the people who are asking the question. I can't rest. It's almost like if I don't understand everything, I don't understand anything. It's like if I, if, and if we have a disagreement, if we, if we disagree about something, we might as well disagree about uh, everything. So it's really important for me, it's become really important for me to just sort of sort out what I believe about every point. Um, and, and to make sure that we have agreement and alignment on all of these things. If you don't, if you don't believe me on that, I invite you to talk to Heather uh, after the service and ask her about the stack of books that I gave her when we started dating. True story, and I'll let her tell you. That happened. Um, but the creed reminds me, and I need this, the creed reminds me that I don't decide who's in and who's out. Like the, It's not to me to decide what orthodoxy includes. I'm not qualified to judge. If I were the one who's judging, I would find a reason to condemn not just you, but, but me as well. And so we've got to let the witnesses test us. So let me, let me close and invite you to take it home with these questions. Do we expect the Spirit to speak to us in Scripture? Do we expect Him to speak in Scripture? Like, how would it change the way that we approach the Bible if we really believe that that's where He wants to show us to Jesus? What would that look like? Um, like, would that make any difference to how we read the scriptures if, or, or whether we read the scriptures? If we believe that in this book, if we believe that in this book, the Spirit wants to speak to us and testify to us about Jesus. And then this, do we believe that the church is holy and Catholic? Do we believe that? Do I see other Christians or other churches as, do I see them with suspicion? Do I see them as, as enemies? You know, if, if the church is holy and Catholic, you know what, that, one of the things that means is that we are not the first people to wrestle with the questions that we have. I think that's really helpful. What, what, what would it look like for us to learn from the examples of, church, of Christians and churches who've gone before us? And then, do we practice the communion of the saints? Do we practice the communion of the saints? Is there someone in your life? Do you have people in your life? Do you have people in this room who are allowed to say to you, I don't believe you if you lie to them and say you're doing fine. Do you have people like that in, in your life? Because that, that's the communion of saints. Do you have people in your life, are there some people in this room who are allowed to drop by unannounced if you're going through a hard time? That's the communion of, of the saints. Are there some people who are still at your side, even though they've had to forgive you for ways that you've sinned against them? They've forgiven you, and they're still here. They're still part of your life, and you're still doing life together. That's the communion uh, of the saints. Thank you for listening.